Let's preview tons of aspects of the Pacers season with Locked On Fantasy Basketball host Josh Lloyd on his yearly season preview pods from a fantasy basketball perspective. We break down the Pacers additions, rotation, what could change, who could be better, who could be worse, and what that means for their win total. All on today's Locked On Pacers podcast. You are Locked On Pacers, your daily Indiana Pacers podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Friday, everybody, and welcome into another edition of the Locked On Pacers podcast, where we, of course, talk about the Indiana Pacers, as always. My name's Tony East. I cover the team for Forbes and SI, and today, a fun, wide-ranging season preview of sorts. Josh Lloyd of Locked On Fantasy Basketball does a season preview for every team, and for his listeners, it's extra important because they need fantasy basketball information, but it's always fun from his national zoomed-out perspective to hear what he thinks about what the Pacers did, and we discuss what that means for the team this year. We talk about the additions and subtractions for the Pacers, how that will impact them on the court, their rotation, how much, if any, they'll be better, their additions and potential subtractions via regression candidates, and what that means for their win total. So lots of fun stuff we get to today, and we even played Immaculate Grid at the end. I thought I did pretty well, but apparently some other hosts have done better than me. You guys should stick around and listen to that fun conversation with Josh Lloyd today. Housekeeping note, yes, it's Friday. The schedule did come out yesterday. Uh, I wish I could be talking about that, but I am out of town, actually. This episode was recorded a couple days earlier this week. Um, so excited to share it with you. It's still a really good conversation, but the schedule is pressing news. We will get to that early next week. Adam Friedman and I are going to break it down as we usually do for the schedule. I think you guys will enjoy that show as usual. But today it's season preview time for the games on that schedule. Let's just get right to it. Tony East, welcome back to the show. Good to be here. Good to talk Pacers in front of a season of expectations for the first time in a while. Well, that is that is preempting a question that I was going to ask you later on. But yeah, it is. They are they are. I wouldn't say like all in because that's not the right term. But there are expectations now. They are ready to start to turn the corner. And when you have a look at this next screen that I'm going to bring up, the change in the roster it undoubtedly is better. Bruce Brown comes in. Obi Toppin is here. Jarris Walker is here. Ben Shepard, Oscar Shibway, Isaiah Wong, they all join the roster. And the guys they lost, yeah, cool. Gabe York, all right, I know he's got that legendary G League uh, documentary that's available at the moment. George Hill, yep, yeah, okay, he played for the Pacers. Chris Duarte, barely played. Uh, O'Shea Brissett, all right. James Johnson, 38 years old, or whatever he was. It's not, now you can argue the merits of Obi Toppin, and, and I have many times. You can argue the merits of rookies impacting winning, which is fair enough. But those three top guys there, Brown, Toppin, and Walker, they're, they're better than anyone that went out. Agreed. And that's why it's so interesting. Like, I know we're not talking about this, but a lot of the betting lines have their win total like 37 and a half, like half a win. Like, even if even if no one gets better, just adding Bruce Brown and Obi Toppin's got to be worth more than half a win. Like, they should be better by default because of that. When Turner and Halliburton played last year, they were an over 500 team. Like, they had about the same winning percentages. Miami and, and Brooklyn, like they should be better this year. Health was standing, of course, but yeah, they, they clearly got better and should be, at least to me, moving up about a tier in the East. Yeah, we're going to talk, uh, we are going to talk about the betting lines later on, but you're right. It's one of those ones where I go, ah, okay. That's a little bit interesting. So we've got the three guys there who are going to join the rotation. We're going to talk more about that later. Brown, Toppin, and Walker. Then the other guys, Shibway and Wong, are two way guys. Mojave King is not signing this season. Is he, where's he headed? Is he going to Europe? It has not been determined. I know he's got two seasons in the NBL and then the Ignite season. So mm. presumably a lot of options. Chad Buchanan, their GM, has said that 
They knew he wouldn't be with them this year when they picked him. So they're actually working with him to get him to the right development spot. So it's still kind of TBD. Because they had a million draft picks and they tried to consolidate and move yep. guys around because they just didn't have the roster spots for those guys. So I guess some people might think that Mojave wasn't really a draftable player necessarily. But the fact that they knew that he wasn't going to be coming over or putting that pressure on uh, helps out in that sort of an area. Uh, in terms of the guys that are gone, like Duarte and Brissett are probably the two players who had the most impact, even though it was marginal. Duarte dropped off significantly. Pacers fans had some high hopes for uh, Brissette at times, but I think he sort of settled into the player he is. There's no there's no loss there that isn't covered by players on the roster or joining the roster, though, is there, Tony? No, I don't think so. I mean, I was always higher on Brissette than the Pacers were, funnily enough. And, like, I think over the last two years, he's the most minutes played for them of anybody. Like, two years ago, he was the only guy who played over, like, 49 games That's crazy. or something. You might be able to double check that for me, but yeah, he played 65 and they were really banked up two years ago. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, Toppin is about the same age and clearly has more potential and probably is better. And Walker is definitely worth investing in at that, at that position as well. So, and, and their four spot last year between was just like Brissett, Neesmith, like clearly a three, two instead of a four. Jordan Wara, who will, I'm sure we'll get to probably won't even play this year. Like they have significant upgrades at that spot, even not accounting. For just Brissett. So it's a big change given what their last two years have been. Let's look those numbers up. So he played 1564 minutes two years ago and he played 1000 and where's the number? 1083 this season. So I think you might be right. TJ McConnell. Buddy, buddy might have caught him. Buddy, buddy might have caught him. Yeah, but Buddy didn't play. Oh, yeah, Buddy played 2500 last season. So yeah, Buddy, yeah, Buddy's got him, I think, because Buddy yeah. played that little bit at the end of the season before. But yeah, that that's still, it's crazy that he's up that high, but he is gone. <laughs> um, we're going to talk more about Brown and Toppin and Walker later on. So we'll just, we'll do that later on. Let's look at the current state of injuries and I think we're okay. Now, they, they obviously had a lot of fake injuries at the end of last season, Tyrus Halliburton, which one of the weirdest situations to me was Halliburton having a legitimate ankle injury, coming back, playing a back-to-back, and then not playing again. I don't know why they <laughs> bothered for him to come back for those two games. It didn't make any sense, let alone playing in a back-to-back, and then he was done. We had... Um, some other injuries with, I think, Matherin, but Miles Turner is the other one who also had some fake injuries. But we are the main point here is we're all clear heading into the season. I can't believe this screen is real. Yeah. Yeah. The the thing about those two games Halliburton played is I, I kind of viewed those as their, their last ditch effort to make the play in. Right. I think they were like two or three games out and they lost both and they got smoked by Boston in one of them. And the same weekend, I forget who the Bulls beat, but they had like a decent upset and that kind of put it away. <laughs> so that right after that, you're right that that was the, uh, that was kind of the end of, of the season for a lot of guys. Yeah, that was it. And then it's when they really started to push themselves down and ended up in that seven spot, traded out of that, went back to number eight, got the guy that they were after, almost no doubt. Probably wouldn't have been the guy that I took, but I've absolutely no problem with them selecting Jarris Walker in that position. But that does bring us to your projected starting five. And Tony, this is a tough one for me because you've got a group of guys there and I, I don't disagree with it, but I also don't know that I agree with it. And that's where this team is interesting because, okay, Tyrus Halliburton's going to start. Absolutely, no doubt about that. Miles Turner is going to start. Fine, we all agree on that. I am like 95% Obi Toppin is going to start. I don't, especially with Jarris Walker having this elbow surgery after Summer League. He'll be fine, but it sets him back a little bit. Obi Toppin's going to start. Feel good about that. I feel pretty good that Bruce Brown is going to start, but not necessarily. He came off the bench for the Nuggets last season. This is not the Nuggets, but I think he's going to start. And then the other one, you've got Benedict Matherin in there who could start, but it could be Buddy Heald. It also could be the guy that started 
every well not not every game but basically every game last season as a second round rookie and Andrew Nampard and we know that Rick Carlisle there's one thing that Rick Carlisle loves apart from being grumpy it is starting multiple point cards so Matherin started out on fire shot okay to start off with the most impressive thing I think of his rookie season was getting to the line as much as he did really hard to do but then everything sort of just continued to fall away and fall away and fall away. And he really struggled to add anything to his game, I thought, as the season went on. Heald had been starting all season. We know that he's bristled in the past at coming off the bench. He did come off the bench for the final five or six games of last season. I think there was a little bit of tanking in that because he was playing like 20 minutes a night. How confident are you? Like, again, I think four of those five, we are we can lock them in, including including Brown. How confident are you that Matherin gets the nod there over Heald and over Nempard? Am I really confident? No, but I will guess that this is the five because, okay, the obvious two, Halberton and Turner, uh, duh, no discussion required. Top and Walker, I mean, that's going to be all the minutes at the four between those guys. And I mean, Rick Carlisle has typically, like the two seasons he's been with the Pacers, he's been better at playing rookies a little bit. Like Duarte and Matherin have played 28 minutes per game-ish the last two years, but Matherin didn't start. Duarte kind of waffled between the two, so... I don't expect Walker to start, even though if I were in charge, I would. Oh, so <laughs> I don't I. think he's going, <laughs> but I don't think he's going to. And that's, that's fine. Um, and then Brown, they just gave 22 million a year too. I mean, <laughs> no more discussion required for Matherin to me. I think they started to plant this seed at the end of last year. You just brought it up a little bit. He started their last, what was that? 11 games yeah, let me have, uh, with him going look. to the bench down the stretch. They kind of pivoted there to see what that would look like with him in the starting five, uh, including, I believe, that back-to-back, yeah, that Halburn also started in. Mm. So they were exploring a little bit with like actual serious lineups there for a second, and Heald came off the bench in those games. So more evidence just beyond that is uh, in the offseason, Kevin Pritchard was asked about what a Buddy Heald extension could, what would require, what they would think about, and he said, going forward, we have to figure out the right role for Heald and <laughs> Um, to, to agree on an extension. That kind of made my eyebrows perk up, as yours just did when I said that. Mm-hmm. And then this one, I didn't actually see this. I'm reading this from someone else, but Matherin was on one of those NBA Finals simulcasts with Stephen A. Smith, okay. and he said, um, me and Rick, we've had a lot of moments this summer where we've been able to increase uh, our relationship a little bit better. And then he said later, I feel like next year I'm going to have a bigger role as that starting three wing, and there are a lot of areas I need to improve on. So that's from Matherin's mouth himself. Again, I didn't see that. I haven't been able to find it, but Sky Agnes put that in Fieldhouse Files. I know he's very trustworthy in the space. So all of these evidence points to me point to Matherin starting. That said, he did say that before they signed Bruce Brown. So who knows what how much that data point actually changes what they're thinking. But to me, the signs point to Matherin being a starter this year. I think it should be him myself, even though I understand Heald is an amazing shooter and, quite frankly, pairs way better with Halliburton than without, so they're by default limiting his effectiveness by bringing him off the bench. We know how well things go when the Pacers promise guys starting spots before <laughs> before the off-season rolls around or before anything yes. happens. It, it, it goes so well. It lasts so long. Shout out to Jalen Smith. We're going to talk more about lineups in a second, but I do have to get in here and tell you that Today's episode is brought to you by Fangio Sportsbook because football season is here and Fangio is giving you the chance to win all season long. Right now, when you bet on a Super Bowl winner, you get bonus bets every time they win in the regular season. You pick any team to win the Super Bowl and every regular season victory that they rack up, your bonus bets, they rack up as well. Now, Tony, I would say that you're probably not maximizing your chances if you're putting a bet on the Colts to be a Super Bowl winner. You're probably not getting a huge amount of bonus bets back on that one. But if you choose, say, 
a good team, maybe then you can get those bonus bets and then use them to bet maybe against the Colts winning games so on the money line or on the spread or on the over-unders or on the player props or on, yeah, I don't know if Fangio's got any lines of crazy things Jim Irsay is going to say, but I'd definitely go over on whatever line they put out on that. But you get those bonus bets, you rack them up and there you go. Easy done. So... Go to fanjul.com slash locked on. Start earning bonus bets with America's number one sports book. That's fanjul.com slash locked on. And don't forget to gamble responsibly. Would you say Jim Jim Ursay is gambling responsibly with his uh with his handling of the Jonathan Taylor situation? Uh no. <laughs> <laughs> no. All right. Let's let's look at the rest of the rotation. So a lot of these names we already mentioned, Andrew Nempard, Buddy Heald, Aaron Neesmith, who started at the four all of last season. That's done. They brought they said, Yeah, that, thank you for that, Aaron. We're gonna bring in two power forwards now. And uh you're out of there. And Jarris Walker and Isaiah. You said Isaiah Jackson or Jalen Smith because who knows? Because that's what Carlisle did after realizing that Jalen Smith A is not very good and taking him out of the starting lineup, they just sort of went back and forward, back and forward. Now to me, it is very clear that Isaiah Jackson is the better player out of those two. That's for me. But what if you as a closer observer of this team? How do you... I, I, that's why I put Jackson there because you went Jackson or Smith. Like, no, nah, I'm not doing it with Jalen Smith. I refuse. I'm putting Isaiah Jackson there. How do you see the battle between those two? It's the same thing every year where it's like, well, either of them pop enough to be the backup five because like even... To, we didn't even say this name, but like Daniel Tice right now is better than both of them. <laughs> that's true. You know, he, he won't play, I don't think. And Chad Buchanan just went on a different uh, podcast and said... You know, Tice isn't on their timeline. Like their general manager just said that. Like they know that. I think Tice knows that. He's still like a valuable veteran. He's not like worthless, but he he's the best one of them. Like if they truly are chasing wins, man, maybe. But I think it's between the two young guys. They're both equal-ish in effectiveness. Smith's rebounding has been kind of important to this Pacers team. That's just awful on the glass. Like I mean, last year especially because they were so small. Him being a better rebounder than Jackson, I think, was important. Not like significantly so, but he's better at boxing out. He can read the ball off the rim a little better. Jackson's very jumpy, but isn't as physical. I think that matters. And of course, like everyone in the Pacers org who signed Smith to this two-year player option deal and promised him a starting spot is going to hope that that three ball returns from that, whatever it was, 25 game sample post 2022 trade deadline where he couldn't miss. I mean, there were 14 games where he's shooting like 50% from deep, which is unreasonable, but that certainly helped his case. So I think there's a chance it's either one of them truly. Like, Smith has made his case. Rick does love his attitude and the way he plays. I, like you, think Jackson is better. Um, vertical spacing, he's the only one who offers it on the team. His defense, he can switch through so many positions. Like, he's just a very unique player that's kind of harder to find and can guard the four, no problem. If you switch him and Jarris between the four and the five, that's fine. And I think that alone is why I would pick Jackson. But, I mean, you're sacrificing a ton of spacing if, you're, if your bench is the group that you know, is listed on the screen right now. So they're relying a lot on heel to shoot in that way. So I think there's a chance at Smith, even though for me, again, I th- I would have it be Jackson. I think there's a slightly higher chance it's him contractually as well. Jackson is also, he's two years younger than Jalen Smith, which yeah. you know, didn't really realize that until just having a look at it right now. And you'll, there's also a name that you'll note or two names you'll notice on here that were actually key rotation pieces on this team last season that I agree aren't probably in the best 10 guys. And that is TJ McConnell. And Jordan Warren. Now, maybe you can argue that TJ is in the best 10 guys, but is he better than Nempard or Heald or Halliburton or Brown or Matherin? Probably not. And yeah, Neesmith playing a different position and not really trans. It's really good to have an emergency third string point guard like TJ McConnell, but he's not better than those other guys. And the other one is Jordan Warren, who did get starts towards the end of last season. I think might be a better player than Aaron Neesmith, but I don't know. They're both undersized guys playing out of position, but 
with bringing those two other players in, in Jarris and Obi, it is going to be hard to see how he gets minutes. I don't want to dwell too much on TJ or Jordan Wara, but that does bring me to talking about undersized power forwards into actual proper size power forwards in Toppen and Walker. Now, in terms of we both expect Toppen to start, and this is one of those ones where I agree, I would love to see Jarris start in there because you invested a top 10 pick and you want to see what he can do. But I don't know if there is a better, more perfect fit in terms of a player to play next to Miles Turner and with Tyrese Halliburton, then Obi Toppin, a bloke that can space out hit threes, that can have his defensive limitations covered by Miles Turner, and can just be an unbelievable pick and roll lob partner with Tyrese Halliburton. The fit there is amazing, even though I don't think the player is anywhere near the upside of Jarris Walker, and probably shouldn't be the guy you look to be your future starter, but the, the fit there is amazing, I think. Yeah, not playing next to Mitchell Robinson alone will help him from an efficiency and space perspective. Again, Mitchell Robinson's good. It's just Turner can space. There'll be more room on the floor. And, like, that's been a whole career problem for Tubman. Like, even at – do you remember this when he was a rookie? Like, he was playing next to Taj Gibson for yeah. some reason. Like, what was that? So th- this team will help him a lot just in that way alone. And the other part of it is this is true for a lot of Pacers players. So th- th- this isn't just a unique to Toppin thing, but – He'll fit really well with Tyrese. Like they're both awesome in the open floor and can run to open space, can play above the rim, can read the transition game well in a way that they've talked about how they think they'll pair well in that way. I think that that pairing being together more often than not will be helpful for Toppin's efficiency as well. So, yeah, I think that the fact that him with Turner is better than him without, just from a spacing perspective, he can shoot a little bit. Him with Tyrese is better than him without. Like he just makes more sense in that way. I would still like to see Jarris Walker with both of those guys too, but I think that because Toppin will be way better with those guys than without, I think he'll start and he'll still give them an element. Like, you know, we just talked about how much Brissett's played. Like they didn't have six, eight players last year. Not, <laughs> like, not, not power forwards, like just guys of that size. So I think that alone will help them. Even if he's not necessarily the best defensive player at all, or can certainly be inconsistent with his jumper, just being tall. Like at that position, I think will mean something to this team. Well, you're right. He's not going to be the best defensive player. He's more likely to be the worst defensive player. But that's that's okay. <laughs> yes, you got some other guys here. You have got Bruce Brown around him. You've got Miles Turner around. Right. You have got these other guys. And Halliburton's a good defender as well. Um, but I think the question then is begged. Like the Toppin and Walker situation is Obi Toppin a thirty minute, thirty one minute a night player, or is this a situation where you want to maximize his time with Halliburton and Turner? But we still want Jarris out there playing 25 and 26 minutes. Now, this is one of those problems. I'll get, let you answer that in a second. But I tweeted this out, I don't know what it was, a month or so ago. And said, this is an awesomely strong draft class. But I reckon on opening night, we might have three rookies that start at, at most. And Walker's one of those ones, again, who's probably not going to be able to crack the lineup just because of the strength of the NBA and the way that other positions are, are, are there. So is Walker, you think, going to be like – and you talked about Carlisle playing the rookies more than expected. But now that – we're in a situation here, like, would he might be a 20-minute-a-night guy and Obi's playing 30, or is it more going to be a 24-24 situation? Yeah, Nemhard and Matherin have sort of broken the Carlisle mold of, like, how much do rookies actually play? And again, Duarte started a bunch, too. So I, when they drafted Walker, they didn't have Obi yet, and in my head, I, I penciled them in for, because again, Matherin and Duarte were right at 28. So it's like, okay, mm-hmm. 28 makes sense. But Toppin, especially at that price, like, no-brainer trade. You, they give up oh, nothing, yeah. basically. So... Then you do that, and now I think it's... Le- I So I built my rotation on a Locked on Pacers episode about three weeks ago, and I had it split 24-24. I think that makes the most sense. Mm-hmm. It's not like Toppin's like has way more upside, and you know, he's... It's got way less upside. I get yeah. Why you- <laughs> yeah, and 
but he is a free agent next year. Like you need to explore him a little faster, obviously. So maybe they lean a little more than 24, 24 in his favor, but also any defense pretty bad. And there's a chance Walker is a better defender, like instantly than Toppin. So um, I think there's a chance it's, it's 24, 24. That's what I kind of think makes the most sense, but I also understand why they would maybe lean a little more towards Toppin just from a fit and, contract timeline for him perspective i can see it starting maybe as a 28 20 and then yeah maybe even flipping to 28 20 the other way by the time you hit february not not that you know rick doesn't make those huge changes like he invests in guys and then sort of rides with them as we saw with with matherin's role not really changing until those final 10 games of the season but that also brings me to talk about the rookie andrew nempart well the second year player andrew nempart who was a surprise starter i didn't really love them picking him at 31 what are you doing picking this uh older point guard who honestly didn't shoot well at all in college and then came out on fire to begin his NBA career. Now, the shooting percentages fell away, but Carlisle loved having those two point guards together. But with the addition of Brown, with the likely elevation here of Matherin, it seems to me that Nempard's going to be in a position where his role is going to be smaller than what it was as a rookie. Would that be fair to say? It's tough to put like a, a total description of what he'll have for this team. So again, I did this rotation exercise. I don't know how much lower exactly this would be from the last year. I have him at 24 minutes with a lot of mm. them coming at the backup one, like we have on this graphic. And then a couple of them sprinkled in as like the backup two or the backup three, because they really needed him defensively in those spots. That's why he started last year, but he is more naturally a one. And this team, when Halliburton is out, like they really struggled. They didn't have anybody who could like replicate the whole passing, shooting, dribbling thing in his way. And McConnell can pass and get to the lane. And yeah, he, like his percentage was nice, but like no uh, one thinks of TJ no, McConnell as a shooter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> even if he, even if he shoots 40% again, it's going to be what 60 total attempts. Like mm-hmm. that's not a shooter. So Math or Matherin, excuse me, Nemhard's are, I think their best chance to kind of replicate it. Obviously he won't be as close to as good as Halbert and he's amazing, but of like can kind of do all three and whether it doesn't sacrifice their style as much. So I think he'll get some burn at the backup one. He was awesome in summer league. At point guard again, like they were constantly, you know, Tyrese Halbert said he should stop playing after the first game. He ended up playing two. So I think it'll be a little less minutes, but that's just because of the additions and he'll have to spread his minutes out between different positions instead of just always just being a defensive two, three, like he was last year. I think that's fine. I think that's actually good for his development. That's what he's played his whole career, but it will lead to less minutes for him this year. And McConnell certainly will play less. Yeah. I had him, uh, I've got him at 25 minutes at the moment and Empire sure. so dropping yeah. down from 28 because yeah, Brown's there more minutes for Matherin uh, predicted or predicted to be more minutes for Matherin. Anyway, Let's take a look at some of the young players on this team. This is everyone on the roster that's under the age of 23. Walker's 19, Matherin's 21, Jackson's 21, Ben Shepard's 22. Kendall Brown was brought back after having that stress fracture in his leg last season where he barely played. Interesting player who was quite young as a second-round rookie, but we just didn't get to see anything of him, and I worried about his shooting. And then Isaiah Wong's there. But what I do want to focus just quickly here is on um, Jarris Walker, who had some horrific shooting numbers in Summer League, but also some unbelievable yes. defensive plays. Now, we were sitting next to each other a lot of this time at Summer League. Tony watching this, and we loved some of the stuff we saw from Jarris defensively, but the shooting was always the concern heading into the draft process. And then he came out and didn't he have a game where he was like none of 10 or something from three or something crazy like that. He shot like 8%, I think, from three over the course of Summer League. When you watch that, now it's small sample size. Clearly, it's Summer League, obviously. But did you look at it and go, oh, no, the shot's like completely broken? Or did you say, oh, I'm not too worried about it. Maybe it's going to get better. And he's not going to be a 39% guy. But you know, 33, 32 in a couple of years' time is a possibility. More the latter, for sure. Like 
uh, the volume was the most encouraging part. Mm. Like he would catch it and just get it up. And if, <laughs> there's a point where in the NBA, if like you keep getting them up and they never go in, like, yeah, that's awful. <laughs> Obviously, you'll have to that's, make them at some that's, point. That's but. the Westbrook there. Right, right. But being a willing shooter this early is certainly sort of encouraging to me. And like, what did it was his Houston percentage? I don't know if you remember, like 34, 35. Yeah, like, it was low volume, but yeah, like if you get to that, he's not a spacer, but at least that's like fine if you take open threes at that level. So I think the hope is he gets to what you said, that that percentage at some point, albeit the ones he'll be taking will be wide open. But uh, that, that'd that be fine, especially because like, you know, what, what you did see for him in summer league was he could put it on the floor, he could pass, and his defense was crazy. It's can he ever shoot in a way that makes him valuable on offense when he's just never on the ball? We'll see. Um, so I'll be curious about that. And then we didn't know this when we were watching him, but who knows yeah. how much these loose bodies in his elbow actually were impacting his shot, right? He had it. He was dealing with it in pre-draft workouts, like two, and then the pain subsided or, or something. You know, he missed his pro day with his agency, so... Who knows how much that'll that'll matter? We haven't gotten a chance to talk to him on the record since then, but I am curious if he'll say, "Yeah, you know, it bothered me a little bit." And then I'd think even more differently about him missing those because it's like it's already a small sample size. So if it's a small sample size and you're hurt, it's impossible for you to put any stock into that. He put together some really massive defensive highlights, just huge blocks, like just positioning. He, he was he looked awesome. My my part of my problem why I, I didn't I didn't hate it, but I didn't love 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 the pick of him at number eight is that I just. Where like he's only six eight, he's not particularly big. He's got he does have a big leap, but part of his value is is in defense. And at six eight, being a big rim protector or shot blocker, especially when you're next to Miles Turner, who's that's going to be his role. So you're not going to be able to show off that skill quite as often in this setting. When people look at you know, Walker's steal and block numbers coming out of college, they might think that that's going to translate immediately to fantasy. But you realize in, at Houston he was playing a lot of center as well, and he's probably not going to get the, as many of those opportunities. And I think ideally he's best positioned offensively as a center and maybe defensively uh, as a four, but can also protect the rim. But there's sort of in-between height, the in-between shooting numbers. I don't, don't really know where he fits in there. And that's I think that's probably going to be the thing you want to find out. This is an easier four, easier small ball five. Can he do enough offensively to be able to play at the four? They're the, they're the questions I think need to be answered about Jarris. Or not answered, at least give something to like sketch in a draft about where he, where he heads from here. Yeah, I usually ascribe to the theory of like you are what you can guard. So if he can guard four or fives, he can play that position at least most of the time. But if you're a four who just can't shoot at all, then you're required to have a five who can shoot to like mm. have a normal NBA lineup with spacing. And Turner can right now. That's great. But only has two more years on his deal. Who knows what that future looks like? I'm not suggesting anything and just stating facts about his contract. So you know that does matter is how quickly he develops any sort of three. I was higher on him than most people because especially if you go back to his high school tape, like I buy his passing yeah, a lot, true. like he really could create. And I think that that definitely won't translate right away. It never does for these guys who don't have the ball a ton and aren't just like handling the ball. But if he can be a short roll creator or a passer, not everybody's going to say Draymond, like that's ridiculous. No one's going to be as good as no. Draymond, but like that type of skill set, like that can play the four and the five, especially if he gets to 34% from three. So yeah, I think there'll be a lot of exploring there, and I think it'll matter how much his three ball comes along. But if he can guard fours, I think he can play the four, and that's kind of all that matters to me in that positional decisions. We teased this earlier in the show, Tony, but this team, they, they're looking for the playoffs. Like this is again, they're not all in, but signing Bruce Brown to that contract, which is $23 million or whatever it is this season, $45 million in total with a team option. They've still got Miles Turner, Halliburton's elevated. You've got these young players here. You've had these two top eight picks over the last two years. Not that they're, they're not top three, not top four picks, but this is not a team that's like, oh, give us one more. 
they are they're ready to go and they they should be considering themselves if not a playoff team a play in team at the very least I would think. I agree, and like I'll, I'll propose this as a question to you: If they didn't sign Bruce Brown, would you even say that their internal development enough would be enough to get more than thirty-seven wins? Yeah, I'm right. Like right. they have a lot of young guys who, in theory, if even only one of them takes a step forward, they should be better. So adding Bruce Brown as well, like to me, they're a better team. They're clearly trying to vault up a tier, and so the question will be: Can they catch these Chicago's, Toronto's, Brooklyn, especially? Like, who knows what that team's record is going to look like because their record's so inflated by what they had before the trade deadline? I think those are the teams they'll be looking at trying to catch this year. I obviously, you know, the Bulls and Nets all think they're better than they were last year to end the season. Toronto, I'm just going to shrug. <laughs> we'll see, I guess. But like, I think it's very plausible to catch those teams. Like, they were tenth. Oh, I can't remember the date. This is going to kill me. But M- March. 20th ish like they were tied for 10th right like they were right there for the plan hunt with the team they just had so i think it's totally reasonable with especially with the addition of bruce brown to cover up like maybe their biggest weakness as a defender on the wing who can also Mm. handle the ball huge for them huge help even though he's a little undersized like they had no one who could do that on defense last year neesmith could at times nembard could at times but not enough so they'll get a lot from that if they're if their defensive rating gets to 21st right given last year's defensive ratings, that'd be a two and a half point growth of defensive rating. Like that would get their net rating to even that's 500 right there. So that doesn't even account for any offensive growth by adding top and, and internal growth. So I think they can get to 40, 41, 42. And given the state of the East and what the records were last year, that should be enough to get into the play in range. And then they could exceed that. Obviously, if the internal growth is more or someone takes a big step forward, then they could be sniffing something else. When we're going to talk win totals later on, I've, at the moment, I have them eighth in the east so that's yeah basically right right on that that area um i'm asking this question to a lot of different people and a lot of different teams about their stars right because tyrus halliburton especially people in the fantasy community we expected a bit of a breakout from halliburton we expected him to elevate he did he did basically what we hoped that he was going to do he made the all-star team i reckon he would have been close to getting in line for an all-nba nod had he not missed the final 20 games or whatever it was of the season. He's not, he wasn't quite there, but he's around that area. The question is like, you can talk about his ceiling. Like, is it MVP? Is it all NBA? But what, what, where does he get better? Because he, he took his usage up. He's still not like taking huge amounts of shots. He's not like one of those 28, 29 shots per hundred possession players. He took his three point volume up, which was um, around the same percentage, but still actually, no, he went from 43 to 48% of his shots from deep. He's always been an elite shooter. He was able to maintain his defensive intensity. So what's the next step? Is it just being more, no, sort of self selfish and self creating your own shots. Not that that's really his game because I'm not sure where the efficiency goes. He's at 57% on twos and 40% on threes. Like, getting high and that's pretty tough to do. So what's the next step and how does he elevate that and his own team to further heights? It's a fascinating thing because, you know, you know, who's averaged uh 20, 10 and 40% for three before Tyrese Halbert and Josh, uh, you're probably going to say no one. The answer is nobody. Oh, there you go. It's obviously, it's obviously a little strange parameters, but like if he scores 20 points, has 10 assists, it goes four for 10 from deep. That's below average for all of his stats, like such a unique player because mm. of, what his skill set is. The thing that I think you just nailed that is the next step for him is upping the shot volume a little bit. And he's talked about it. He knows that like even him creating his own shot is more efficient than him setting up other guys sometimes. And he's so naturally pass first that he still tries to do that. But the, the step forward he took last year, I don't know if you have basketball reference up is the percent of his percentage of his shots that were assisted 
from two went down to 24.7% and from three went down to 44.7% below 50%. Mm. And even with those numbers, his true shooting percentage was awesome, yeah. right? So he could take two or three more shots a game and he's creating them himself. And those are good, efficient looks that are helping his scoring average, helping the Pacers score. It's a good possession for the Pacers usually if it ends with a Tyrese Halliburton shot. So of course he'll want to take a step forward on defense. I think he said he's like five pounds heavier or something right now than he was last season. Uh, some of that's that he didn't play in games for two months, but either way. Um, and then also to me, not only the on-ball defense getting a little better, but that would be the other thing is, you know, what I think is like 15 shots a game last year, like getting that to 17, 18 range. Yeah. I don't think that would sacrifice that much efficiency for him given what his shot diet was. So I think that would be his next step is he could get close to like a 24 and 10 guy. I don't know exactly what his ceiling is or looks like just because he's such a unique player, but I think getting closer to that ceiling requires him taking more shots and being a little more selfish, which is so not his personality. Yeah, that, that those percentage of shots assisted is really interesting. That they are staggeringly big drops, especially the ones from three where he was like fifty eight percent the year before, down to forty five percent. It's a big, big drop to be self creating over half of your three point uh, over half of your three pointers is, is pretty big, and getting to the rim more as well. And yeah, he's not, that was one of the issues with him through college uh, is like can he actually draw enough free throws and get to the line uh, enough? And he was able to. Um, yeah, sorry, I'm jumping in because he said something I. I should have said there, but like he had this shot that was kind of coined the Halley hook last year. We'd get like five feet from the rim and just do like this weird running hook layup thing. Like he's got to got to be stronger with those actually taking the layup and trying to draw fouls because that is a big stat that separates him from super duper stars from a scoring perspective is free throw rate. He does not get to the line very much. He needs to get there more. He improved it. He went from 2.5 to 3.6, which is almost a 50% increase. But when yep. you're working from such a low base, it is easy to jump up 50%, but he needs to take that to five, five and a half, whether he can do it or not. That That is probably the step to me because the efficiency is there, right? It is a little yep. bit more usage, but it's also get to the line more like that helps your overall true shooting it helps your overall production it's just easy points especially when you got the ball in your hands that that much you really he really does need to be able to up that i I think he can and interestingly not that this means much but over the final 10 games of last season he upped that free throw rate like significantly like free throw attempt to field goal attempt ratio went from 0.24 to 0.39 over the final 10 games so that's that's a big jump whether it sticks or not who knows but it's at least trending in the right direction. So we'll see where we go there. Who's a breakout candidate on this team? Uh, can I lazily just say Matherin? <laughs> I mean, uh, fair enough. So, yeah. And I say that because his free throw rate's insane. Like it's unbelievable. That It just gives him such a high floor to me. Like he was 13th in the NBA last year, not for rookies, not for guards, like the whole league, his free throw rate was that good. And I've talked about this too much, honestly, a little bit in my life, but Like, if you look at the free throw rates of guys who reached 40% free throw rate as rookie guards, it's like 10 out of 12 of them were all-stars at some point in their career. So he he has to get better at so so many things to, like, hit this ceiling. But, like, even a three assists per game Benedict Matherin is so much better than Ben Matherin from last year. Like, if every other stat's exactly the same. Or 35% from three Benedict Matherin is so much better than the guy that they had last year if everything else stays the same. So... Like the the way that he gets a lot better is kind of low hanging, and he's mm. he's saying all the right things. He's working on all the right skills. So to me, it's him, and and it kind of feels like a lazy answer because a lot of the Pacers' future kind of is predicated on him and Halbert and fitting well together. The other guy I would say is Nemhard, just because he can do a lot of like he has such a wide variety of skills between his passing, dribbling, and shooting ability that if if he can put it all together a little bit more in terms of getting all the way to the rim and a little bit better decision-making. It's just same kind of deal with Matherin. Low-hanging fruit to get a lot better, and that's kind of the case for a lot of rookies. But those two seem 
like breakout candidates. And then the one that everybody will point to is Toppin just because he's in a way better situation where it seems like he could finally be playing to his strengths instead of playing for a coach that doesn't necessarily value him as much or have as many minutes for him and on a team that system doesn't make as much sense for him. So those three guys are the three most to me, although they have so many young guys that are in pretty good positions, that there's a lot of guys who could theoretically break out a little bit. Yeah, I think you look at nearly all of these players and think that there are ways that they can get, look. Maybe maybe Miles Turner can't get better, but doesn't mean he gets worse. But right. most other guys, like you know, yeah, yeah, Mathurin should get better, and Toppin should improve, and um, yeah, Isaiah Jackson should get better. Maybe we get a little bit more out of Aaron Neesmith. There are, there are a lot of players on this team that can do that. But what about on the other side? Who is someone that you might be a little worried that maybe there is a drop off? That a ton of guys, honestly, that's, but that's mostly because of the age of the team. That's not because of you know, that sounds like too optimistic to say, right? Like I just said it out loud. And I was like, oh, that sounds stupid. But I guess McConnell would be one because he's whatever, 31, 32 yeah, now. Yeah. And he's got the he he's fast with the ball. And that's a big part of his effectiveness is being able to just kind of skate by guys into the pain. If that ever goes away, who knows what his effectiveness will be. But you, I don't know if he'll play enough to like really notice, <laughs> right? If our rotation That's is correct, true. so you know that one's hard to say. Tice is on the older side too, but he'll be a lot healthier than he was last year. Like they don't really have any obvious regression candidates. Anyone, I guess, can at any time have a worse season or be in a worse position, but. I, mean, I don't know about you, but I have trouble thinking of someone that's like, oh, this guy's role or age is going to make them less effective than last year. Look, I wouldn't be surprised if Nembhard's overall counting stats drop because he plays fewer minutes, but that's not sure. to say he gets worse as a player. But I think there's a risk of that. And uh, yeah, otherwise, it's TJ McConnell, who really, towards the end of last season, when Halliburton was out, was able to put up, and even when he was out earlier in the, in, in the season, he was able to put together some big numbers. And you know, this team, if they're serious and not tanking down March, April, then he will play. Few, much fewer few minutes and won't be able to generate anywhere near those sort of numbers. Who is the most likely player to be traded? Probably Buddy Heald, if I had to name a player, just because of his contract situation, right? Like the NBA, is just free agency is not as much of a thing anymore, and Correct. teams really think about what expiring contracts mean, right? It was a big storyline with Turner until he extended last year. And the other thing is, I talked about this on Lockdown Pacers, like him, Bruce Brown, and Turner – are there big contracts if they want to make a big move during the season? And one of those guys is expiring and uh, the other two aren't. So it's definitely Buddy Heald to me just because from a salary matching perspective, from his contract perspective, and they have a lot of guys at two or three, right? Like even Ben mm. Shepard just waiting to play eventually. I don't know if he'll play this year, but they have enough depth to recover if he doesn't play. Like I think it's probably Buddy Heald just because of his contract situation, but any of those big salary guys make some sense to me. But the other answer would be any of their backup centers, <laughs> right? Like just clearing up that log jam in a way would help the centers and probably help the Pacers just from a roster balance perspective. So I don't know which one. It's not like there's any obviously best one at their current juncture or current cross crossroads, but any of them also, I think I would throw my hat, their hat in the mix. We've teased it for a while, Tony, but let's do win totals now because they won 35 games last season. They had a negative 4.1 net rating, which was 26 in the NBA. Ooh. That's not good. Like that net rating is uh, it's not a good number, um, but I see you're celebrating here because Fangio's got them at 37 and a half and we both – Went at 40 and 42. The same record. We did it. 40, 40 <laughs> and 42. We've got them jumping up five wins next season. And honestly, I, the more I think about it, I, I'm I'm not sure it's high enough. I, I think that there is a chance that they get to 42 or, or maybe even higher. I think that, yeah, Halliburton playing an extra 20 games is is huge. That's that's a that's at least three. Surely that's at least three or four extra wins there if he plays twenty more games than what he did last season. I I think that there is so much scope. You know, I think most teams got better this offseason. There are some who didn't, but 
it is always hard to get those wins when every other team is fighting for them. But I, th- I think that I think that we're pretty spot on here in them going over that thirty-seven and a half. Yeah, the net rating thing. So I'll give you the downside part before I agree with you. Okay. <laughs> the reason they wouldn't go over is what you just said. The net rating is what it is, and some of that's that they were just tanktastic at the end of the season and got smoked a few times. But like a lot of that too is they were really good in the clutch in December and January, and that is not typically something that. It's predictive from year to year. Phoenix being the poster child for that, going from the best basically to the worst mm. over the last two seasons. And so that could be a reason you say, okay, if they don't have the same clutch success they had last year, they weren't amazing. Like they were pretty good. Like if they go from pretty good to like below average, that could hurt, certainly. Um, but I agree with you that, you know, even it's not even at the 20 more games for Halberd. Like 65 is 10 more. Like that's mm. two wins right there. Bruce Brown's a, a win or two top end plus internal development's probably a win or two. Like to me, it's pretty easy to see how they go over. And the way they would go under is either catastrophic injuries or just like disastrous clutch play. And to be fair, two years ago with the same coaching staff, they were the worst clutch team in the NBA, but they have a new team now. They have a whole new roster. So I think there's way more ways that they go over than ways they go under. Don't, uh, I want to see their schedule before I put like an official win total prediction on it just to see where the back-to-backs and hard stretches are. But yeah, I mean, I find it very hard to believe they would be a similar record team to last year just given everything we've talked about. And they did this offseason. And like, you can even sum it up by saying I had three progression candidates and zero regression candidates. Like that should be a better team by default. I, I, I agree. And this is interesting because I just finished talking with Nick and do, doing the Locked On Mavs or the, doing the Mavs season preview and we talked about how they lost a ton of close games and I made that exact point saying that stuff often just goes back and forward like year on year and the Pacers, are, the Suns are a great example. The Pacers are a great example because they were third in the NBA in wins above expectation last season. They were 28th the year before. So they were one of the best last season and right. one of the worst. So you, you can take that away and you can knock off a few of those extra wins. But then we add in Halliburton and improvement and players added and Bruce Brown and Jarris Walker and Obi Toppin, a guy that's you know, not not a shooting guard playing power forward. Like all of that stuff should be able to offset that plus add a couple of extra on. Now that's the boring stuff done, Tony. Let's play a game. You are the grid legend oh boy. sitting next to you in Vegas at Summer League. Watching you pull out some of these names was really impressive stuff. So I'm hoping you can bring the magic here again we're doing a paces only grid. Obviously, it's we're going to compare them. We're going to get paces and nets, warriors, wolves, sixes, and magic. The last one is a player who made an all star game as a member of the paces. But because Tony is you that's doing it, right? There is no rarity score. I don't know how the masses would have answered these questions. <laughs> but how we are scoring these is I am looking at all of the players that fit each category, looking at their games played for either franchise, taking the smaller number and then ranking those small numbers. So if someone played 480 games for one franchise and 10 for the other, the 10 is what counts. And then we rank those and you get a low score for someone who made a one-game random COVID replacement appearance for one team. When we get to the All-Star one, they have to have made the All-Star game as a member of the Pacers, and then we grade those guys based on fewest amount of career games played for the Pacers. Okay. All right. Where are we okay, starting? I can do this. Yeah. I think I got most. Yeah. So for some context for you listeners, I actually discovered Immaculate Grid sitting next to Josh, and I pulled it up, and it had Pacers. Yeah. And I think I pulled like Nazmi Long for the Jazz. What was the other one I got that was that, really That lucky. was the one that stuck in my head, Nazmi Long <laughs> for the Jazz and Pacers crossover, and it was like 0.1%. I go, bro, I had... When, I thought when that was great, for? but I don't know about you. I think everybody cheats on those now that yeah. I see a lot of results on the internet. So now it's like less cool to be... Like, I'm almost more impressed when people get, like, 40 to 50 than when they're below 40 because then I know they cheated. Yeah. Okay. Um, my rarity Pacers-Nets answer. I'll go Edmund Sumner 
for that one. Karis LeVert would jump out to a lot of people, but I'll take Edmund Sumner for Pacers Nets. Edmund Sumner. Oh, he's not, not bad. He played quite a few games, though. He played 53 for the Nets, which is probably more than some people expect because there were some Ooh. other absolute crackers who didn't play many games at all. Let's tell you who the highest score was. Well, actually, i just bring that score across so you can have a look. 32. Highest 50. score, Pathadius Young, probably? No, it was Boy- Boyan Bogdanovich, actually. Was oh, the highest. yes. He, he yes. Was, he, so he played the most. So that would have been the worst option. In terms of what would have been the best option, Vincent Askew played one game for the Nets back in the 90s. That would have been a good score. Um, who else is uh, – there's some players, people here. I Harris, Levert would have been on both. Levert um, was here. He he had a, a, a worse score than Sumner, so Sumner was a better choice really? for you there. Yeah, he played – because Levert played 74 games for the Pacers. Yeah, Levert played 74 games for the Pacers. Oh, that throws me off. And wow. Sumner played 53, so the 53 score is better, so you get a better score there. Who else was an interesting oh, – CJ Watson, and that was a pretty high score for him. I think he yeah. did okay. Most of the other ones are just Mel Daniels. Lester Connor. Like Dang, just, that one got me. I thought Sumner would be a better answer than Levert. There's all these, there's all these random. No, the, the Sumner was a better answer than Levert because you're looking for the lowest score. Sumner is a better answer. Right, right. Yeah. So yeah, you, you got you did all right. All right, next one. Where are we going? All right, I had a good answer for this one, but I think I have a better answer for Pacers Warriors. Okay, uh, I'll go with Brad Wanamaker. Wow. I, well, I now that you said it, I do, I do remember that happening and him playing for those for both of those teams. Um, he also was a Celtics legend as well, wasn't he? He was. He was. Um, well, okay. So he started with the Celtics and then joined those other two teams, didn't he? That's how that worked. Yes. Uh, so Brad Wanamaker gives you a score of seven point four three. That is a yes. that's a good score because he played. What was his low score? Twenty two games for the Pacers. There you go. Not very much there. The highest score, the, the worst one you could have got there was Mike Dunleavy. Um, he played tons of games for both of these teams. Um, who else was a good one that you could have gone with? Can I ask what the score for Glenn Robinson the third would have been for Pacers Warriors? Seventeen point one. So Wanamaker okay. beats that one. There yeah. are again a bunch of uh, David West, CJ Watson. They're pretty obvious. Yeah, I was ones. Say David West was the first one I saw when I saw those logos. Stephen Jackson, Jarrett Jack, all those guys. But they're not. Gee. They're not particularly low scores. Most of the low score. Oh, Leandro Barbosa for his twenty-two game. Pacer career. Oh, wow. that would have been a good one. That would have been a good one. And then um, Tim Hardaway Sr. with his 10 games for Indiana. Remember those? Oh, Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> I would not have gotten those. I did not know that one. I'm going to skip Timberwolf for a second because they're killing me. All right. Um, okay, I thought of two for the Sixers. Uh, I'll go Kylo Quinn for Pacers 76ers. Wow. When did Kylo Quinn play for the <laughs> – Okay, so I am – Kylo Quinn, former Magic legend – I am shocked. That's right. I could have him for the magic too. Oh, Dang, I didn't think of that. Kylo Quinn, I <laughs> he somehow played more games for the Pacers than he did for the Sixers. He did. That's great. I, I didn't know that. He played 45 games for Indiana and 29 for Philadelphia for a score of <laughs> 10.74. One of your best ones you could have got here was Alex Poitras played Oh, I actually probably could have got that one. Six Dang. game six games for the Pacers. Another well, a higher score one here would have been Lavoy Allen, who played a lot of games for both teams. Oh, Allen, I would. Um, who else is a funny name on here? Oh, Trevor Booker would have been a good one. Glenn Robbins in the thirds on this one as well, I believe, correct? He is. He would have been an 8.68 score. What about Scott Skiles? Played 10 games for the Sixers and 130 for the Paces. Scott Skiles? <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I would have got that one. I, no, I definitely wouldn't have got that one. All right. We've got, <laughs> we've got the Magic. We've got the... Uh, Wolves, and we've got the All-Star. Okay, I'll do the All-Star because I think I know that there's only like the most were answered to me that I could think of is Brad Miller, there, probably. There are 
hang on, I'm on the wrong list. There. Let me tell you how many All-Stars there are in Pacers history. 15 players who have made the All-Star game. And your Brad Miller guess is not the best but it's dang, it's pretty, really? it's pretty bloody close. And this is the one that trip, it trips up people all the time. And I'll explain it in a second. It's a really good score. One point. Wait, is it Jeff Teague? No, it's one point four five for Brad Miller because he played one hundred and one games for the Pacers. But the guy that's played the fewest career games that made an All Star game while a member of the Pacers is your starting point guard, Tyrus Halliburton, who's played 80, <laughs> 82 career games for the Pacers. Okay. So people just forget, like, oh, Halliburton, yeah, is it? but he's barely played there. Like, he's he's only played 82 I games. So he's... Uh, so they had to be an all-star for the Pacers for this one to count. Correct, correct. All right, we've got Magic so, and we've got the Wolves. Okay, I got a Wolves one, finally. Right. Um, Keelan Martin. Wow, Keelan. Yeah, okay, that, that is a good one. <laughs> Keelan Martin. He was on the Wolves. So I, I remember because I was asking Ryan Saunders about Keelan Martin for a story like two days before he got fired. By the oh, Wolves. wow. So that one, for, that one worked out in my favor. I forgot about Ryan Saunders. <laughs> Keelan Martin. All right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm pulling out the names for you here. Um, Keelan Martin, where is he on this list? All right, 11.97. So that's pre- wow, pretty good. Than yeah, that's higher than I thought as well. He Because he played, let's have a look, 31 games for Minnesota. That was his low. He played 62 for Indiana. It gets skewed when you see guys like Jordan Hill, who played seven games for Minnesota. Oh, man. I never would have pulled that one. What about when... Uh, Born ready. Lance Stevenson played six games for the Timberwolves. Anyone remember that? I don't okay, see. No, I would not. Have got, I should have gotten that one. I bet a lot of my listeners will have gotten that one. Um, and then we got Our the question, though. Do players who were on the Pacers roster but played zero games? No, nah, got to have played a game. Those don't count? Got to have played a so game. So I can't give Ricky Rubio for Timberwolves? No, no, no. no. You have to have played a game. All right, let's do, uh, let's do the Magic and the Pacers. I'm having trouble with the magic, so I'll just go with the very recent obvious one of Goga Batadze. Goga Batadze, it's a good one because he didn't play a huge amount of games. He only played 17 over there in Orlando, so that does work as a pretty good score for you there, Tony. Um, what does the score end up? 10.29 for Goga on that one. All right. Pretty good score there. Who else could you have gotten? The worst one you could have got was Victor Oladipo, that he played the most games. Um, oh, holy cow. How did I not get that one? Obviously, Kylo <laughs> Quinn, Scott Skiles, but he was a really high score. CJ Watson. Um, who else is another one? Solomon Jones. He was one. Um, how about how about uh, this guy who I'd forgotten existed, but he was a player at one point, Damian Rudej. Played. Oh, yeah. Damian Rudej, uh, DJ Augustine, oh, right? Yeah, he was, uh, yes. Magic, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And anyone else? Uh, Greg Kite played nine games with the Pacers back uh, at some point in the ni- sure. 90s, I'm guessing. <laughs> Tony, that's it. We're done. Thank you is for coming. Is this good or bad compared to how other people That is done? a pretty good score. I think who was on earlier today? Ryland for the Thunder, I think, is in the box seat. He's dropped some absolute crackers this morning. The Thunder have some, like... A ton of guy, random guys who played for them for like 10 games. That yeah. doesn't count. He was just sitting there like just blank, no emotion. Just a bang, bang, bang. It's like, wow, all these scores are unbelievable. He was just he was just carving them out. But Tony, that will do it for us today. Thank you for coming on Chatting Paces. What's going on over at Locked on Paces? Yeah, fun stuff right now. Oscar Shibway was on last week that center they signed to a two-way deal. Earlier this summer, doing some historical stuff. Uh, we talked about Chris Herring's blood at the Garden. Also looking at their rotation, who they should protect in an expansion draft. All sorts of fun Augusty stuff. Uh, because, hey, expansion is coming at some point, which I'll add to your play, Josh. But uh, lots of fun stuff. And, of course, in terms of actual like topical news right now, Tyrese Halbert and Buddy Heald, Daniel Tice, all playing for their national team. So lots to break down in terms of actual basketball games. Go and check out everything that is happening there over at Locked On Paces. Tony, thanks for coming on. Thanks, Josh. 